We're going to have several texts this morning, but I want to begin with Isaiah 46.10 and uh, let that kind of stand over this message. So I was getting ready to go to the next um, beatitude as we were finishing up. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This uh, message had kind of been on my plate for a while, and I think it fits here to do this today. We're going to title this Broken Families. God's providence and purposes in a fallen world. Isaiah 46.10, the Lord here makes this great declaration when he says, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And that is what he's doing today in this room. He's accomplishing his purposes in the life of believers today in this room through the preaching of the word, through the singing, the praises, the fellowship. His counsel is going to stand. If I had my main purpose today in this message, it would be this. To increase your faith and understanding in the God who rules over all, even broken families. This work that God is doing is the one that he is teaching us about in the Sermon on the Mount. As he's telling us, this is what the new life looks like. This is what a regenerated person looks like. And he empties, God empties us first. He shows us that we are completely bankrupt. The poor in spirit. As we are awakened and we see our condition and the condition of our families, the condition of the world, we mourn. It's at that place that we are finally teachable, which is meekness. And from that being emptied out of all of our self, we are very hungry and thirsty after something we don't have. Righteousness. Once we are emptied, then the grace begins to flow out to others in our life. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We talked about that last time and how the very name Yahweh means mercy. And it, we grounded that over there in Exodus 34 in God's great sermon of declaration of his mercy and loving kindness and long suffering there. But in the middle of this work that God is doing, and the Sermon of the Mount describes it, what he's doing, and, and Jesus is teaching us, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds, which is the righteousness of Christ. He is separating in this world. And sin has broken God's human family. It separated us from him, the Father. When we began to question our Father and not trust Him in the very beginning in our first parents, the relationship was broken. And from that led a brother that murdered another brother. And, and from that place, we come to understand that in this world, there are those who believe and those who believe not. And these family sorrows that we have in this life, and I know you've all had them and are having them, are the heaviest sorrows of all. And yet, and yet, this blessed state of grace enables us to keep trusting, hoping, and believing, and praying for everyone, especially our families, until the end. In this work that God is doing in the world, He's doing in this room. He's been doing it ever since He made us upon the face of this earth. He has 
having mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whoever he does not have mercy, he leaves them in their sin. Which means to harden them or to render them obstinate. He hardens whom he wills by not acting upon them. As he's doing this work in the world, it's causing broken families. How do we live in the midst of this brokenness? I I hope today to increase your faith and understanding in this God who's ruling over even broken families. Because where else are we going to go, right? Well, our first point is to just state that this is a reality in the world. Broken families are a reality. We'll go to Luke chapter 12. Christ states this. In 1249, now, I'll just give you the heading at the top of chapter 12 here at Luke, because I think this is helpful. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, what is that hypocrisy? That means there's some that are pretending to be something they're not. And and that's going to divide families, those that really have it and those that don't. And Christ goes on there at at the top of the chapter 12 and says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. And it is being known. And this whole point of teaching, when Christ gives you light, that light set on the hill, it will be seen. It can't be covered up. This kingdom of grace will be seen in the world, and those that are in it and those that are not. In verse 49, he says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. For from henceforth, from now on, there shall be five in one house, divided three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, and the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is shocking. Because the announcement at his birth was peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And it is for those who receive it. So from now on, he says this is going to be the state in families. The gospel of grace, which is called the gospel of peace, is going to separate families. And for those who are born by the Spirit, they come to desire Christ more than their family relations. And I would say that you can't love your family even properly unless you'd be born of the Spirit. And so these Beatitudes that are bringing forth the graces of the soul and the life as God is separating His people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of this world, He separates families because some are being called unto Him and some are not. And I would add to that yet, right? Because as long as we're breathing, we're hoping to the end. And I want to leave you with that hope today too. One example of this is... uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli and his sons. So there is this text in 1 Samuel 2. 
In verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons did unto all of Israel. Now his sons are wicked. And they're priests. How they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And then he said unto them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. He said, No, my sons, it is not good and not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Yahweh, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father. They didn't listen to him. Why? Because the Lord would slay them. His sons are wicked. They deserve to die. But their final obstinance and hardening is in the hands of the Lord because it says the Lord's would, the Lord's will is to slay them. Now that's painful for Eli as a father. It's so painful that when he hears of that and of the ark being taken away, what happens to Eli? He falls back, breaks his neck and dies. And yet, we see that he responded right in this separating between him and his sons. Because if you recall, before this happened, and Samuel, the little boy, is in the temple now. God speaks to him the first time. God gives him his first prophecy. And that prophecy is this judgment of God against Eli's sons. And I, I would just ask you the question, how are we to respond when we see the gospel separating families? Some change the gospel. But here we see Eli respond the right way in 3.18. So once... He gets this out of Samuel. Samuel's afraid to even tell him. This is such a terrible prophecy. But he gets it out of him. And there in 3.18, Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems him good. That's the right response. That's the response the person who's in grace has. God is sovereign over broken families. Which means God is ruling. God has vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And this is painful in this life for us. We don't know how it's all going to fall out. So we as believers continue to hope and pray to the end for everyone. But we have to understand this is reality. It's not easy. We're going to need to be on our knees praying and begging of God to help us have grace and mercy in the midst of broken families. And His grace is sufficient for you. And we need to respond like Eli. Whenever God decrees on some family members, and it will be evident at their death, no repentance, no forgiveness, Punishment by death forever. I was reading a biography this week about Adoniram Judson. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Did I get it right? Adoniram Judson. And this letter gives a great illustration of a man who understood this separation. And I I would just like to read that to you uh, so you can see what this looks like. Now, he's just been converted. It's 1809. He has dedicated himself to take the gospel to where it hadn't been taken yet. 
to Burma. There are churches that were established in Burma because of his work that are still there to this day. And he meets a, a young lady and falls in love and you know he's ready to get busy with the work. So he writes this letter to her dad. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of frontier life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this and hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness? Her father let her decide, and she said yes. And she went, and she died there. And he only came back to America one time in 33 years. But you can see the clarity of his understanding of separation and the call that God had on him. God didn't have that kind of call on everybody, but he did him and his wife. And I imagine there were some family members who said, what are you doing? Leaving the comforts of America? You're crazy. Why would you go over there and take your wife over there? There's so much hope. You can do more work here for the gospel. You can imagine, right? All of that. Because I, I have some friends over there who heard that from their family. Why would you go to the most dangerous country in the world? And take your kids there. Well if God's call was upon his life. It would be dangerous for him not to go. Actually more dangerous not to go. Than to go. And so we see that. This is a reality. This call. It is a separating. He's calling you to leave all behind. The one who puts their hand to the plow. And looks back he says. Is not worthy of my kingdom. And in this separation, there's going to be brokenness in our families. And we're going to need grace to deal with this. And we've got to understand God's sovereignty, that he rules over all. Because that's the rock under our feet. Which is our second point, which is just God is sovereign in salvation. I know we love that, don't we? I mean, how many sermons have you probably heard? God is sovereign in salvation. But I'll tell you, when I first came to faith and I read that book called The Sovereignty of God, I loved that doctrine. That doctrine cleaned it all up for me. And when I can trust in Him who I know rules over all and that everything that happens is going to be right and just and no one will be able to complain about it in that day, every mouth will be stopped, every knee will bow, and everything will have been done perfectly. And that rejoices my heart. Even in the damnation, possibly, of some family members. It also gives me great, great comfort to believe in this doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation because I know no one is beyond His mercy. And when He gives mercy, it's permanent. And when he grants mercy, it's an eternal mercy that abides forever. It's a mercy that transforms people's hearts away from this world to himself. Our hearts become bound up with him. Our desire is for him. And it's that recentering of lives that takes place that separates families. In Matthew 11, we see another, we see a great example of this. There's many places to go. We see a great example in Matthew 11 of God's sovereignty and salvation. 
So I want to read that text, a couple of comments on this. So Jesus has just selected his 12 disciples. John is questioning. He's locked up in prison. And Jesus sends word back to John and tell him the good news, what's going on out here. He's been preaching in various cities. He's preaching in the cities of some of the disciples. And then in verse 20 of Matthew 11, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Notice he says most of his mighty works here were done in these cities and they didn't repent. He's upbraiding them. Which means he's charging them with a disgraceful act. He's reproving them with severity. He's upbraiding them. Why didn't you repent? Did all these miracles, does all this work, heal the sick, the miracle of the gospel was preached to you? And he says, Woe unto you, Chorazin, and woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow, this is shocking stuff. Because Christ knows what it would take to bring them repentance. And he doesn't give it. And our response to that should be, why me? Not to judge him. That's his job. But when I see that he's had mercy on me and brought me out of such wickedness in my life, And to see that it was by his mercy that he had mercy on me. Wow. It's to be amazed. He knows what will bring about their repentance and he doesn't give it. We know Romans 2 says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And he doesn't give it to everyone. And knowing, Jesus knowing what would lead to their repentance doesn't do it. And yet, he holds them accountable. And I, I'm not going to get into all the philosophical discussion. I'm going to give you the facts. God is sovereign in salvation and men are responsible to repent and believe and will held accountable for not repenting. And believing. The rejection of the gospel is a greater sin than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. More tolerable and eternal wrath for gospel rejectors than unrepentant LGBTQ. So where are you standing right now in the refiner's fire of this gospel and of this God who declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy? 
This doctrine, I believe, will sustain you in your broken families, broken relationships. Because this eternal work is taking place that Christ is teaching us about on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, blessed are, blessed are. It's a state, it's a fact. Those that are in the kingdom, this is a reality for them. And this reality is so foreign to this world, foreign to American culture, foreign to our sports culture. It's foreign that we have to be immersed in this again and again. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit in us to see the reality that this is opposite, that the whole world lies in wickedness. This doctrine will sustain you because in the midst of the brokenness and the sorrow, God's ruling daily in mercy gives us hope. Again, because we know that if He grants mercy, it's forever. This is a kingdom-building reality. Again, many submit to this. There are some who change the Scriptures. I've said this before, but there is... Let me give you a quote, and let me run down this thought, okay? Uh, I was reading a pastor, and he's got this. He says, It is a great proof of the baseness and filthiness of sin that sinners seek to cover it up. All right? Even wicked people try to hide their sin. We even had a president from Arkansas, right? He tried to cover it up initially, and then, well, what does is mean? We see that. Even the wicked try to cover it up. So that proves sin is base and filthy, right? So it is a great proof of the excellence of godliness that many pretend to it. It's a great proof that godliness, the Beatitudes are beautiful. That The way of living is beautiful that many pretend to it who don't have it. And Christ says in Matthew 20, cannot I do with what I want with my own? In Ezekiel 18, he says, all souls are mine. And so the refiner's fire separates between those who are pretending and those who are in mercy and in grace. And this kingdom reality will help you be careful not to change the truth. Because there are some, when they realize they they are attracted to the beauties of the gospel, they're attracted to the idea of godliness and the idea of holiness and the idea of redemption, but when they see it's not working out in their life and that they don't really have that, then they change the doctrine to fit their experience. But those that are in Christ won't do that. We submit to the word. We love the word. We trust the king in this refiner's fire. What are one of the reasons why God allows us to have broken families? I think we can see God's purpose. My third point, what is the purpose behind broken families? In Hebrews 12, I'll give you one. I'm sure many more. But one purpose of God is for chastening and warnings. So as we go to Hebrews in chapter 12, we're in a section right here in verse 14 where it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And we know that this peace-seeking, peacekeepers, it's one of the Beatitudes, those that have received peace, we want everybody to taste the peace we've got. And here... The Holy Spirit teaches follow peace with all men and holiness. You can't follow peace, believer, without 
holiness. Which means we can't compromise. Whenever God separates us out of wicked living, there's particular things we can't do anymore. And that might be with some family members. There may be family members that try to coerce us into particular behaviors or going to certain places we used to go and we can't do that anymore. We have to follow, we, we want to follow peace with them, but not at the expense of holiness. Without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And then he gives us an example in a family. This is an example that's held up. I, I, I'm so glad God could have... Just think about your family being used as an example in Holy Writ, Jacob and Esau. Lest there be any fornicators. What do we know about Esau? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, so why is this put here? This Esau, who was separated from Jacob, they both had two paths in life. One went, went to two different eternal realities. Esau is set forth as an example for believers. Because the believers will see that example and they won't follow it. God puts guardrails and safety rails and hedges around his people through the warnings that are given in Scripture. Because we'll hear and obey. The very meaning of the word fear of God means you obey God. And the worst part of this example is verse 17. The most terrifying for me. For you know how that afterward... When he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance. For he found no, no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Jacob, Esau wanted it, wanted it right now. He wanted the comforts of life right now. He didn't believe in delayed gratification. He didn't believe in suffering and having to deal with a little bit of hunger. Sold it. He doesn't understand the big picture. He didn't understand the eternal nature of the blessing. And he rejected it. And then he was rejected. And even though later he tried to find repentance with tears and weeping, it was not given to him. Now that's a warning that's effectual in your life, believer. If you read in Proverbs chapter 1, I won't go there, but it's the same thing being taught. It said, God, I'm standing daily preaching the gospel, the truth, creation. You're without, all men are without excuse in believing that God exists. And in Proverbs, he says, wisdom is preaching all day long in the concourses and the pathways of the city, and you wouldn't listen. And so I'm not going to listen to you. When you come to me in repentance. Those are warnings that believers hear and adhere to. And so I, I would say a great purpose behind broken families and being able to see what a life looks like that's not being sanctified, that's, that hasn't had the heart won to Christ. When a person is headed that way and we see it, it's terrifying. I have a story of a man that I knew in Texas that was a friend of mine. And he, things crept into his life that shouldn't have been there. He left his calling. And God killed him and scattered his family. And that life, when I think about it, 
and I can see the choices he made and the things he did. It, it terrifies me. And I believe God gave that to me to keep me. And I think Esau, these lessons like Esau are given to keep us. And so as we see God working out grace in families where some believe and some believe not, and we, we go through these hard, hard sorrows that are taking place, we have to know that God is putting these examples in front of us so that we might plead with them and so that we might not follow their pernicious ways that Peter will say there in 2 Peter 2.2. 2. It says, Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So God's purposes in the world, He's separating and He's restoring. He has vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. It's a painful process for us to see this. And the purposes of family, of broken families, and God working through them is for our repentance and for our growth in grace. Life is hard. I tell you, the choices that we are making reverberate through our families. I went through that series talking about Deuteronomy. Generational godliness. And as God blesses families that are pursuing Him and seeking Him, and that have the gospel read in their house, and that are singing the songs of Zion on their house, and God blesses that. It normally blesses that over generations. But He doesn't have to. And there'll be some who will not listen. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4, I think we've got a good example here of how do we, how do we live with unbelievers in a family and the closest relationship. 1 Peter 3, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating of hair, of wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. I think we've got a great lesson here in front of us about, sounds like there's a wife here living with a husband who doesn't believe. This is the most intimate and close of relationships. And I think there's some things we can learn here. First of all, we learn that there's going to be suffering in this. We know there's going to be suffering when you've got a couple unequally yoked. In, in the early days of the gospel, the gospel was being preached. You might have had a Jewish man and a Jewish woman. The, the wife believes that the man stays with Judaism. Could be that you've probably seen this happen too over time that you get a couple of people, they even grow up in the church, get married, but over time it becomes apparent by the fruit of the life that the husband or possibly the wife is not born of the Spirit. And I think we've got some good instruction here for how to deal with that situation, which we can apply to any situation. And I, there's also the we, got, we can't forget that in marriage, what is the what's the whole purpose of marriage? To show us Christ and the church. And just like this wife is suffering under an unbelieving husband, probably. I mean, even believing wives have to suffer under believing husbands. Jesus Christ suffered. Jesus Christ was in subjection to his Father and suffered for us. And as Christ is showing graces through you as a beatitude converted believer, so also this wife being transformed has got to be in subjection to this man. And one of the things I think we can learn here, he says, if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wise. I think the greatest sermon that you will preach in your life is the one when you are home. Because how you act up here 
is great. I hope, you know, we're all full of grace and everything up here. But when you're at home, that's your true colors. That's who you really are. When you're alone in the hotel room, when you get home, how you treat your wife, your children, how you speak to them, that, that shows whether you know Christ or not. Whether you're showing mercy or you're a root of bitterness like Esau. And so here, this wife, it says, live in such a way in front of your husband that he might be one to the faith. So that what our lives speak is powerful. And without the life speaking, what comes out of our mouth will not be effective. In fact, those people who are living duplicitous like that, if, if it happens to be in a family, many times those kids will grow up, apart from a work of the grace of God, the kids will grow up and they'll reject that faith. Because they say, there wasn't no power in that. So this wife is preaching a message to her husband by her life. Paul talked about you're a living epistle that's read of all. Your life is being read. Everybody's reading. We're reading each other's mail all the time. Now, in grace and mercy, we are patient with each other. And you guys have been so patient with me, and I'm grateful for that. But the authenticity of this kingdom reality that Christ is teaching us will show up with two people in a house And this example of this woman is the one we need to follow. She submits. She continues to live a chaste conversation coupled with fear. She doesn't try to be something outwardly that she's not inwardly. The word adorning there is cosmo. That's where we get cosmetology. We've got a couple of those in the, in the congregation. Cosmetology is the arranging, the orderly arrangement is really what it means. Orderly arrangement. And, and Paul is saying here, he's not saying you shouldn't do that, ladies. In fact, all the men here are very grateful that you do. But what he's saying is the most important thing is that your heart, the hidden man of the heart, the heart, that born-again heart which is not corruptible, this ornament, it's a, of a meek and quiet spirit which reaches back to that beatitude of meekness. Meekness is that word which means strength under control, teachability. A meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God, great price. So how's that wife, if she's getting angry, bitter words, how does she respond to that? Meekness. She'll be searching herself and say, God, if there's any truth to what my husband is saying, Lord, help me change. And she should take text to that man and say, you know, the word says angry words are hatred and murder. Why do you hate me? And why are you murdering me with your words? She can use words like that. She gives truth. And when we're in these difficult places in broken families and family relationships, we see people are not living the way they should. Text. We've got to give them text. Pray, God, what text can I use here? And you could go to him and just say, you know, I love you. It, I, I wish that I saw you going to church and worshiping. I, I wish I could see that, that you loved God in Christ. And, but my heart's broken because I don't see that in your life. And I was thinking about this text today, and I just want to give it to you. I believe the Spirit gave this to me to give to you. What you do with it is your business. Here it is. orderly arrangement of our heart and not being provoked by someone who may not be a believer. We have to respond like Christ responded. How did Christ respond in these situations? When he was reviled, he reviled not back. When they were beating him, he didn't punch back. He's, did, he turned the other cheek. 
meekness. These women, this woman here is instructed, quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. You don't think God not hearing the prayers of a woman like that? I wonder how many men we will see in glory whose lives were converted by faithful wives. God working through their wives. And then he says down here, likewise ye husbands. So, verse 7, likewise ye husbands. As God is creating change in the world, in your life, there's going to be separation that will be painful at times in broken families. The truths of God's sovereignty, that God knows what He's doing. He's working things out perfectly. You can trust that. He will give you grace how to respond. He'll give you these graces of the Beatitudes so that you can be a living witness of Christ's glory, that you can show to people Christ is more precious than this stuff. And how we respond to it will give evidence of where we're at, right? No one can serve two masters. And sometimes families want to be served. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Again and again, Christ tells us these things. George Mueller had some friends that he prayed for. I want to give you this story as an encouragement to you in your prayers. Because you know he was a man of prayer that God put in place to encourage us all to not faint, but to continue in prayer. In November 1844, George Mueller began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, or whatever the pressure of his engagements were. Eighteen months elapsed before he saw the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second one was converted. I thanked God for the second, and I prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. So we're like 11 years and 12 years into this. I thanked God for the three, and I went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. So 36 years later, he wrote that the other two sons of one of his friends were still not converted. But he said this, I hope in God, I pray on, and I look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. Isn't that great hope and comfort for us in the face of our brokenness and broken families that we continue to press on because we know when He grants mercy, it changes everything. Those two men were finally converted 52 years after he began to pray. After he had died. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Sometimes God works things out on His timetable and not ours. And He's got perfect reasons for doing so. Well, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And you're going to need great grace to show mercy towards people who sometimes are not going to show it back to you, even in your own family. We don't know who will come to faith. We leave that in God's hands. But we have great examples in the Bible to warn us and to keep us on the narrow way. We have to remember that even Christ had a broken family. Y'all remember in John 7? Uh, I think there's a story that I was thinking about this week. Jesus is getting ready. You know, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. And uh, there in John 7, it says that his brothers come to him. And uh, 
they say to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So here his brothers, his family comes, putting pressure on him to do something according to what they thought was right. But verse 5 it says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. And we read later that some of his brothers did come to believe. I don't know if all of them did or not. Can you imagine Jesus growing up in a family, multiple brothers and sisters, a perfect child, and having other brothers and sisters that are totally depraved? Probably some fussing and fighting. Probably... He probably received, he started getting it from the time he was young, I'm sure. And this Christ is the one with whom we will all have to do on that day. This reality, brothers and sisters, I'm talking about today of broken families and God's sovereignty over that. I hope will encourage you to trust Him and to hope unto the end. This reality is very different, again, from this world. This Bible from Genesis to Revelation shows people who bow and pause before God's rule over good and evil. They don't question it. But the world cries, contradiction, contradiction. There are no contradictions in God's word. Apparent contradictions that we don't understand yet, maybe. But God's word is true and faithful. So I would just leave you with those words and from Psalms 2, 11 through 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in Him. Have you put your trust in Christ? I'm supposed to be a persuader. Only the sovereign God can make the call effectual. Here's the outward call. Trust Christ. Believe on Christ. Eternity is really at stake in our lives and choices. And in Christ, we have great hope. We can't be separated from that love. At Judgment Day, I believe that it's going to be well done, thou good and faithful servant. We don't have anything to fear in Christ, in grace. But between now and then, we got work to do, and it's not easy, and there's a lot of pain and sorrow. And this word will help us get through all of that mess. So I pray God would bless that.